On today's episode, understanding the PHT basics with Matthew Boyd. Welcome to the podcast, helping you overcome your proximal hamstring tendinopathy. This podcast is designed to help you understand this condition, learn the most effective evidence-based treatments, and of course, bust the widespread misconceptions. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm an online physiotherapist, recreational athlete, creator of the Run Smarter series, and a chronic proximal hamstring tendinopathy battler. Whether you are an athlete or not, this podcast will educate and empower you in taking the right steps to overcome this horrible condition. So let's give you the right knowledge along with practical takeaways in today's lesson. Welcome back. Um, I've actually pre-recorded this episode and I have, at, at the time of release, hopefully, I'm traveling around Western Australia and Perth for a, a friend's wedding, but also two weeks to for my family just to have a good time together and just take our four-month-old baby on a flight and um, car trip and new accommodation, different time zones and all that sort of stuff that we have to wonder how it goes and a lot of the uncertainty and unknown of it all, but uh, took this opportunity to take an episode that is on Matthew Boyd's podcast. He has the Adaptive Zone podcast, excellent quality. If you love running and you love good evidence-based information, just like the Run Smarter podcast, you'll love his podcast too, so go check it out. But one of the episodes from his podcast, he interviewed a very interesting guest, which I think you'll resonate with and you'll enjoy the guest he has on so let's take it away hi guys welcome back to the adaptive zone podcast my name is matthew boyd i'm a physiotherapist and running coach if you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to like and subscribe and share it with a friend if you're so inclined today again we're going to be talking with Brody sharp a physiotherapist and running injury specialist from australia Brody, thanks for joining us on the show again thanks for having me matthew always good to be back so just for the listeners who didn't catch the last episode with you, which was excellent, um, could you just give us a quick summary of you know who you are, what you do, and uh, your professional work? Yeah, sure. So I am a physiotherapist, as you said. Uh, I mainly, well, I am right now purely an online therapist, and I mainly attract my clients through the Run Smarter podcast. They'll listen to all of my content and then be like, oh, yeah, Brody can help me out, and then they'll usually sign up for a free injury chat or something along those lines. But um, what is not as well known, but still um, it generates a lot of clients is my second podcast. And it's it's a lengthy one, Overcoming Proximal Hamstring Tendinopathy podcast, and um, really helps that particular niche, really helps a really select few people that really need it. And so, um, yeah, I've been putting... Um, as much effort into both of those podcasts and um, just trying to educate people, trying to educate people how to overcome their injuries and get back to pain-free, whether that's running or cycling or um, those sorts of things. Because the podcast itself, the Run Smarter ones, tailored for runners, but anyone, any athlete um, or any sedentary person can end up with proximal hamstring tendinopathy. So um, helps educate those people as well. So for the listeners, if you're wondering if you should stay tuned, we're talking about butt pain. So if you have pain in your <laughs> butt when you're running or doing anything else, including sitting, this might be the show for you. And the reason I wanted to get Brody on is because not only is he a physiotherapist, running expert, and someone who's had trouble with 
proximal hamstring tendinopathy himself, I understand. He also has a podcast with, is it 100 episodes now on that show? Correct. Yep. Yep. So if you need a resource, that is the one to check out. So what Brody and I are going to do is take a, a higher level view today on what it is and what's going on. And then if you do think that this is your problem, I'd definitely check out Brody's podcast that he mentioned. I'll put a link right at the top of the description there so it's easy to get to. So if we just start like with the, the basics, like what are we talking about here? What is proximal hamstring tendinopathy? So we could just break down the term. So um, we're looking at proximal. When we say proximal, we mean like at the attachment point and for the hamstring that is up near the sit bone because your hamstring attaches up around the ischial tuberosity and proximal hamstring tendinopathy means that the tendinopathy is some pathology that's going on with the tendon as it attaches to the sit bone. And so that can be pain, dysfunction, um, and has the associated symptoms for that. Um, so that's what we're talking about. Yeah, cool. And so, I mean, if anyone's really um, not clear, that your hamstring's the muscle on the back of your thigh, right? It's the opposite muscle to the quad. It's the, the muscle on the back of your thigh. So when you say proximal, you mean up near your sit bone. It's like the, the bony bit of your backside. And the tendon is the bit where the hamstring attaches, right? So that's where we would have the problem. Yeah, most people can like sit on a firm surface and appreciate the the sit bones as they make mm. pressure onto the um onto the chair or seat or wherever you're sitting and what the tendon does is actually wrap underneath and attaches behind that so when it's sore and when it's undergoing some sort of tendinopathy like as you sit on those sitting bones as you collect pressure it's irritating or squashing that irritated tendon and so that's why it can be really really uncomfortable some people they feel like they need to shift around in their seat or they feel like they need to stand or lean over to the other side and um that's because it's it's so high up that attachment um it's so what we call proximal um people mm. can really it can when standing be perceived as like glute pain um but it's actually only because the hamstring attaches so high up that it has the perception of it being glute pain which is often why there's a misdiagnosis um, for most people with PHT. Yeah, I'd, I'd certainly agree with that. I've certainly made the mistake of not seeing it like first or second appointment until, you know, you get to, you, you ask the right question or you do the right test or they say the right thing. And it is an easy one to, because there's other things that can give you pain in that area. So if if someone's not sure and they've had other diagnoses, what, what are some potential alternative things that they could have or have been told that they have when they actually have proximal hamstring tendinopathy? I think piriformis syndrome is a nice flashy diagnosis that people like to just place on butt pain. Um, sciatica <laughs> is another one that's um, a very over-diagnosed sort of term, any sort of pain in the hamstring or in the glute or down the leg, people just like to slap a sciatica on it. Um, you can have other things that are a little bit more less common. Um, you can have a, a posterior hip impingement, which presents differently, but the location is is very much spot on localized to that high hamstring area. and could be quite sharp, but it's usually sharp with extending the leg back. So um, it's more of like a passive thing. You don't actually actively kick back a therapist can have you lying on your stomach and just like lift up the leg 
and it creates that pinch only because the bones and the the joint structure is creating that impingement rather than a muscle or tendon activating and causing that pain. Um, so you can quickly differentiate those two. Um, piriformis syndrome uh, or like piriformis pain or glute pain, that sort of stuff has a very vague overlap of what proximal hamstring tendinopathy also presents with. Um, but that's where we need to do some other little tests here and there and dive into the nature of what caused this in the first place. Um, very often, very correlated with high hamstring load is sprinting, is um, really picking up the pace of your running, hill running and that sort of stuff. Um, significantly ramps up, like it, it um, what's the word I'm thinking of? It exponentially increases the load of the hamstring as you get faster and faster. It just doesn't do that for your quads. I mean, your glutes, your glutes pretty much stay at the same amount of load as you run. And so if someone comes in and says, I've been doing a lot of speed work lately, I've been doing a lot of intervals, been doing a lot of hill work, um, but now I have this butt pain, it, you know, it's very, very hard to overload your piriformis and your glutes doing that, but it is so, mm. so common for you to overload your proximal hamstring. And so already with that clinical presentation, you're already gravitating towards the proximal hamstring diagnoses. Other tests would need to be involved, but, you know, purely based on that, that history, you'd, you'd think that might be the case. So if I could sum up, if you, so you've got pain in the gluteal area, so your butt and the, the sort of top of the back of your thigh, and a more, it might be more likely to be the hamstring tendon if you find that it's provoked by things involving more speed, particularly running involving more speed. Is that, did I get that right? I'd say that, yes. Um, there are other things like sitting, um, like if you were to do like a long bike ride or if you were to do a, a marathon and then involved like a lot of sitting or you had to do a, a hard session of something and then involves a lot of sitting on a firm surface, like people watch their kids play sport and they sit on those really hard bleacher type of seats um, of that's like been overloaded in your workout, but then irritated afterwards by the sitting um, just because you squash that tendon as well. Um, you like for piriformis syndrome and glute stuff, they don't really get irritated that much by sitting. Yes, if you mm. sit in a low chair and you're crossing your legs for a long period of time, they might stretch and irritate the piriformis a bit. But, um, you know, this is why there's some, there's overlapping characteristics, but with enough diving into the history and a few other tests, which we might talk about and looking at the clinical um, symptoms, you can, start to differentiate the two hmm. so it sounds like you know doesn't like speed well pain in that area doesn't like speed pain with sitting they yep. these are all kind of things where you're thinking okay this could be a proximal hamstring tendinopathy I, I would say like you're not getting better you're not getting better with traditional rehab is that one for you that's one that always makes me think oh yeah i've had people very classically have this butt pain, go see someone, they say it's piriformis syndrome, they give them stretches, they try mm. stretches, doesn't get any better, and then they've been having this issue for months. Um, if you think it's a piriformis, which like I don't know how many piriformis syndromes I've seen. I've, I 
don't think I've seen that many. But um, the I'm not sure I've seen any. Treat it as such. Treat it as such. If it doesn't, if it doesn't respond well, if it doesn't get better, then consider other options. It might still be piriformis syndrome. Try doing something else. But at the same rate, it might not be piriformis syndrome. And then, um, unfortunately, people. Um, they might go to a therapist and they might think they have proximal handring tendinopathy and the therapists themselves don't really know how to effectively manage this. And then they give them hamstring stretches and that doesn't help anyone. Um, and so people can get really stuck, but I would say, mm. you know, if you treat, if you suspect it's PHT and you treat it with effective PHT treatment and it starts getting better, then there's your diagnostic tool as well. Mm. You use symptoms and you use the response to treatment as a diagnostic tool which can be really effective so are these your main indicators that people should be thinking well when we say pht for anyone who didn't catch on we've been proximal hamstring tendinopathy yes um, sorry are they the are they the sort of main indicators that would make you think this person has this problem or is there any others that we haven't touched on that people should be kind of on the lookout for um, sometimes bending over, sometimes picking something up yeah. off the floor, like would load and lengthen the proximal hamstring tendon. Um, <clears throat> we have this test called the shoe off test where, um, if you're standing and you just try and slide your shoe off without like just in an upright position, if you've got like slip off kind of shoes, um, you sort of dig your heel into the front of your other foot and try and slide off your shoe. It's digging your heel back and digging your heel under that sort of movement um, can activate the hamstring, particularly the upper hamstring. And like if someone has a long standing, some people have a positive shoe off test, some don't, but mm. you can talk to someone with a long standing history of PHT and you just mention to them, oh, we have this test called a shoe off test. And they'll say, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Every time I try and slide my shoes off, I get this high sort of hamstring pain mm. or high glute pain. You know, it's not the glute then, it's it's the hamstring. And so a few of those little tests as well um, can start to hone in on your the increased likelihood that it might be this diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah, with those ones as well, like I always like to say, it's a bit oversimplified, but like it can say, Yes, it can't say no. So if you do that shoe off test and it doesn't hurt, that doesn't mean it's not your hamstring. But if you do the shoe off test and it does hurt, there's a very good chance it is. Mm. That's the way I look at it. Um, yeah. Just otherwise, I, I fear someone might hear that and then do the shoe off test. They're like, oh, that doesn't hurt. And then they kind of move on and they miss it, um, whether they be a clinician or just one of the runners listening to this podcast. Um, none of these things, just because you don't have them, mean that you don't have this problem you still could but if you have all of these if this is all ringing a bell it's very likely that this is your problem is that a fair summary yeah i think if someone's like listening to this is we're, we're trying to communicate like it's a piece of a puzzle like you you're mm. trying to sort of piece all these things together there's not one definitive test or one definitive presentation or history or anything like that that would um say 100% you have this diagnosis. It is just trying to piece a whole bunch of things together to increase the likelihood of something and decrease the likelihood of something else. And, you know, just sort of painting that picture and getting all those pieces together and then 
with all of those pieces of the puzzle, having a theory, trying some treatment, trying some, trying to treat it as what you suspect it is. And then if it gets better, then that again, increases your um, accuracy or increases the likelihood that it is this particular diagnosis. And so, um, yes, we can't be very definitive in doing one test or one thing and saying it is this, you need to do this. It's unfortunately not that simple. So I, I guess a listener might be thinking, could, could I not just get an MRI and then that can tell me exactly like, yes, that's what it is or no, it's not. Yeah, this is great. Um, so there's a lot of issues with MRIs. Um, one, they show everything, um, but also when it comes to tendinopathies, they might not show anything. Um, <laughs> a tendinopathy is, uh, can be a very mild reaction a very mild overload of the tendon. There doesn't need to be any physical changes for there to be hmm. pain and dysfunction. Unfortunately, it sounds like for the uneducated, might not make sense. Why does that pain if there's no change there? Why is there no tear or no strain or anything like that? Sometimes it just doesn't show up. Sometimes it is just pain signals from an overloaded structure that doesn't need to have any physical damage. But what makes it extremely difficult is... Sometimes hamstring tears are an incidental finding as well. Um, you can have healthy populations being scanned and there be some mild hamstring tears here and there. Um, I had a, a lady that I had a chat with, it was probably about two years ago now, and she had hamstring pain or high glute pain, jumped on a chat with me. We, she got an MRI and it showed a three centimeter tear. So quite significant, um, in her proximal hamstring. And she was really worried about whether she needs surgery or whether she needs something else. Um, and I was just like reassuring, reassured her, allayed her fears about a whole bunch of things. But then she messaged me, emailed me a couple of weeks later and said that they accidentally scanned the other leg. They accidentally MRI'd the <laughs> other you leg. You were going to say it. <laughs> yeah. You were going to say yep. it. <laughs> and she hadn't had any issues whatsoever with that side um, in the past. And she was just so confused. And I had to just <laughs> say to her, look, this is what happens. This is incidental findings. This is what's natural and common, those sorts of things. So we need to be very, very careful with MRIs because they can instill a lot of fear in people if they see a, a tear or they see a retraction or a two, three centimeters, something going on, um, it can really spark a lot of fear and people can have a lot of fear to load that tendon because they feel like it's going to re-tear, it's going to worsen the tear and like all this sort of stuff. And it pulls them in the wrong direction for treatment, which is really unfortunate. Okay. So I think that gives the listener a good idea to what to look out for. And this is definitely not a, you know, comprehensive or exhaustive list of how it presents and, and how you would differentiate it from other problems or what the other things could be. And, you know, we would never present it as that. So you're going to need to work with a professional, but let's say that you, you're pretty confident that this is a case of PHT and the runners had it for, you know, a number of months and they're struggling with the things you mentioned. So not too bad on slow runs, but when they try and run faster, they get pain. When they try and do hills, they get pain. Maybe when they sit, they have pain. What are the what's the general idea with rehabilitation? How are you going to get this person better? General things I, I like to consider two pillars. So the first pillar is your running. Okay, what can we do in your running to help to to keep this uh, condition under its 
threshold. We want to make sure that it doesn't get aggravated by that activity. So let's try and manipulate and modify your speed, your mileage, your distance, because some people can, it can be quite irritated and very, very slow running can still irritate it. Um, so we might try and do a run walk. We might try and do, you know, some other things that they're at least doing the activity and maintaining or not irritating, still trying to keep everything under control. If the very, very mild or very, very short distances are still irritating, then we have to back off and do some sort of cross training or, you know, give it a couple of weeks to do work on this other pillar, which is strength training. Um, the other, so we've got the running as the first pillar. The second pillar has to be strength training and it has to be finding what load you can tolerate. Once we find that load you can tolerate, we need to progress that exercise, usually by doing heavier and heavier stuff. And I say this on my podcast constantly, and I'm still jumping on calls with people who haven't got the message across. Tendons love slow, heavy load. And they, you know, the, the body weight stuff, the high reps stuff might get you might improve you a little bit, but you quickly plateau out. It's not until you progress the load and progress the weight. I'm talking about deadlifts. Um, I'm talking about trying to stack on that weight and slowly apply that is where the tendons are going to really thrive in those conditions because they love slow, heavy load. Um, Mm -hmm. The trick is finding out where that starting point is because so many people will listen to my podcast. They start deadlifts. It's too heavy. They do too many and then they have a flare up for days and it's, you know, trying to try similar to the running. We're trying to find what conditions, what, how we can manipulate certain variables to fall within your adaptation sweet spot. We do that for the mm, running. Okay. We do that for your strength. But then once we find that sweet spot, it's our job to sort of progress and continuing to progress to meet those right conditions that tendons love. Okay, cool. I, I think I'd like to focus on the the strength pillar because we, we talk a lot about like finding the amount of running that you can tolerate and progressing it and re- regressing it as needed in other episodes. I know you do on your show too, but if we if we talk about the strength, I just want to try and not not give a plan for someone, but try and illustrate what it might look like in terms of what kind of exercises at what stage and what kind of timeframes we're talking about here, just so they have an idea where they might be. So Let's say, let's say I had this problem and I couldn't, um, I, I, I could sit, but it hurt immediately. And I tried to do some deadlifts because I listened to this podcast and I heard deadlifts were good. But even though I only used a 20 pound dumbbell, I did 10, three times. And the next day it was really painful. It was painful for like four days, hurt to sit on like someone like that. Is that a common scenario and what would you do with that person? It is quite common. Um, What I would do for that person is, okay, let's, again, adjust these variables. What I would definitely do is reduce the range of movement for their deadlift first. That's going to be the first bit of, um, because we want a bit of time under tension. Yes, we want a bit of... um, a bit of load in there if you can tolerate it. So my next, I guess, adjustment once you've settled back to your baseline symptoms is to say, okay, let's try the same thing. We'll do three sets of 10. We'll still do the same time under tension. So it might be three seconds down, two seconds up. So five seconds per rep. Hmm. But what we're going to do is instead of doing that full range deadlift, 
is we're going to bring that weight just to your knees and then come back up. So we're doing the same deadlift action, same sets, reps, weights, just reducing the range of movement and seeing how you fare. Again, we'll see what symptoms are like afterwards. And if that's well tolerated, then I might even progress the weight and get you significantly heavier before increasing the range of movement because we've identified the range as a particular vulnerability for you. Um, if that so plays out as I've just talked about. Um, but even if that is still irritating, then we need to revert back to maybe doing something lighter, maybe doing fewer reps and sort of making uh, greater adjustments to try fitting things within your sweet spot. Mm. Yeah, I love that strategy of uh, shortening the arc, I call it, or reducing the range of movement. So you get a painful uh, exercise and then I'm like, okay, good. So let's do that. But that painful range, let's stay out of it. And let's pump the weight right up in the rest of the range and do that for like a week or two. And then go back to the original weight, see if we can go full range. And oftentimes I find you can. And I find that's a really cool little, it's not a trick, but it's a strategy that I think works quite well a lot of the time, particularly with tendons. Yeah, there's no, there's no formula here. Um, it's just picking apart some ideas and um, it's not like a step-by-step, -step, if this causes pain, then do mm. this. If this is successful, then do this. There's so many different ways to do it. You could stay at full range deadlifts and just reduce the sets and reps and see if that mm -hmm. helps you. We're just sort of, I like to think of it as dials. Like you've got your um, your weight, your the other dial will be your sets and reps. The other dial will be your range of movement. And we're just trying to, you know, massage those dials here and there to see what b gets the best outcome. And um, similar to running, a little bit of pain during the exercise is okay. Sometimes pushing around three out of 10, um, maybe maximum four out of 10 for some people. But we want to make sure that that backs off um, quite quickly. We want to make sure there's no increase in symptoms the next day because um, some people try to aim for symptom-free, pain-free deadlifts and it doesn't, they don't move the needle as quickly. They're stuck at like a one out of 10 deadlifts for four, five, six weeks and they haven't got anywhere because they're aiming for symptom-free. You'll find that if you aim for two to three out of 10 during the deadlift, that doesn't irritate afterwards, you're actually progressing quicker and you're increasing the weights more frequently and then you're able to see better recovery. And so just to, I know it's difficult because it would be different in different people, but let's say you, you've got the dials right and you got the amount of load on, let's just stick to that one exercise. Obviously there'd be others, but let's just stick to one to illustrate the point. And, and you get it right and you get the range right and you get the amount right. And then you you mentioned that's really important to progress it. So how would you progress it, and what kind of rate of progression are you looking for? Yeah, good question. Um, I would definitely be more wanting to increase the weight rather than sets and reps. I wouldn't want to venture mm. into progressing from three sets of ten to twelve to fifteen to twenty. I wouldn't really want to do that. I'd want to hover a range of around eight to 12, sometimes eight to 10, sometimes six to 10, depending on how experienced the athlete is or how strong I think they are. But let's just say for argument's sake, we hover between eight and 10 reps. So what I would do is say, do three sets of 10, 
and have 20 kilos, then I would progress that by dropping it to three sets of eight and increasing the weight, say to 25 kilos. And then I'd progress the next one by keeping the weight the same, but increasing the reps. So we're hovering around eight to 10 reps. Whenever I increase the weight, I drop it down to eight reps. Whenever I am at eight reps, I'd increase it to 10 and then just fluctuate around that by, um, yeah, just increasing the weights as necessary. That would probably be my first point of call. Um, And that can, if someone has a real vulnerability to increasing range of movement, and so every time they increase beyond half range movement, if that flares them up, then I could just stay at half range of movement and just keep going heavier and heavier and heavier. And then eventually sprinkling in one set of three quarter range of movement Mm. and doing the rest of the two sets at half range of movement and then slowly working in that. Um, The range of movement is important for someone like a cyclist or someone who's um, wanting to utilize their, their hamstring full through the full range of movement during their athletic sport or whatever that might be. If you're a runner and your real, your vulnerability is um, that range, just go heavy and really reduce that range and, reap the rewards of the slow, heavy load first. Then we want to start to do full range movement down the track somewhere because obviously we want to restore that capacity to for compression and for the tendon to be under load, under stretch. We want that to have the full recovery, but doesn't necessarily need to be the case in the early days. We can just focus on the slow, heavy load and it might be more successful that way. And I think like what you mentioned there, you can have a nice benchmark there for improvement. So if you're like half range of movement, 20 20 kilograms, if you can get to 30 kilograms with the same level of discomfort, two or three out of 10, uh, and three quarter range of movement, you are making progress. You're not all the way there, but you might not be seeing that much change in your running yet, but you're like, yeah, this is definitely better. This is definitely improving. What kind of timeline though? Like, does this take would they make that kind of progress within a, a week kind of thing or two? Or does it take more like a month or two? Or, or is it like really long, like, you know, six, mm. eight months to move the needle even just a little bit? Yeah, I, I tend not to move in terms of time frames. I tend to move in terms of symptoms. Um, when I work with my clients, I'll have the most minute progressions in their progression chart and I say you progress as soon as you're able to tolerate one or two sessions like if you've done two sessions at a certain dosage and we know that you've tolerated those we're moving to the next phase which is Mm. you know increasing by two reps per set or increasing it by two and a half kilograms like it's a minute adjustment but we're constantly doing that once we know that you can tolerate that previous task Um, but the rate of progression will depend on your starting point. People will find if they have to start with really light weight because that's what they can tolerate, the rate of progression will be quite quick. They'll might progress every single session um, or every two sessions, um, but then find once they get really heavy and they're deadlifting 50 kilograms, 60 kilograms, 70 kilograms, the rate of progression will have to taper out. Like people just simply can't progress at the same rate they did initially. You can't just go from 100 kilograms to 105 to 110 to 115 every single session. That just, you, you, you'll you break down. 
So you need to listen to your body and you need to see um, when that rate, how, how quickly that rate can go. I usually have a few conditions that people need to meet before deciding to progress. One is symptoms allow. So we've talked about that before, um, making sure that it doesn't irritate afterwards the next day, returns back to baseline relatively quickly. Um, the second one would be like the level of challenge. So like the level of difficulty would be um, just your perceived effort. How tough was it doing those 100 kilo deadlifts? And, you know, people find, okay, that was exhausting. That was really tough. Um, I found it really, really challenging. Then we probably need to wait for that to dampen down before we progress. The other one is form and technique, making sure you're completing good quality reps, good quality technique, every single rep, every single set. If you're maintaining that, then great. And the fourth one would be the rest of the body, making sure the rest of your body is telling you that you're able to progress because I've seen people progress their deadlifts and their tendon can tolerate it. Their symptoms are falling well within acceptable limits, but all of a sudden their lower back starts getting a bit sore, starts mm. getting a bit stiff, or their grip strength is really failing them. Like all that sort of stuff. We want to make sure that symptoms allow, level of challenge is okay, the rest of the body is feeling okay um and you just want to make sure that you're able to maintain good form and you know no no complaints with that and if you're able to tick off those four things you're ready to progress to the next phase cool i, I think that will give people a good idea the way you're thinking about it. it's, it's almost like a, a capacity-based progression or a, a merit-based progression as opposed to a time-based progression sounds like the way to approach it i think so because um you know, people are going to progress at different rates based on where their starting point is. And we don't want to overload them and progress too quickly, but we don't want to underload them and like have their rehab be delayed because they're too worried about progressing at the same time, or they're just sticking to I'm progressing once every two weeks and following that timeline. And it, they could be really successful by moving a bit quicker. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it, you don't want to slow yourself down or speed yourself up when it's not necessary. You've mentioned compression a few times. Could you elaborate on what you mean by compression and why that's relevant to this topic? Yeah, um, I think it's an important one because the tendon, tendons have like different loads that they, they undergo. Um, the main ones, there is shear, but that's not really applicable to this one. There's tension or tensile load, which if you can imagine um, something quite linear. Like if, 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 a, if a tendon is stuck to a wall and you're pulling on that tendon, that is just a very linear, um, load that's being applied, but you also have this thing called compression that's being applied. And like I said before, the tendon of the, the hamstring wraps underneath and attaches behind the sitting bone. So if you're sitting, it's wrapping underneath that sitting bone, touching behind it. So it actually, as it wraps around the bone, if you pull on that, imagine like a pulley, a pulley system that has the cable that runs around the track, around that sort of um, <clears throat> the circular sort of tracks that it runs along. It's compressing and squeezing into that, that track. It's mm. compressing into that pulley. The same thing is said for the tendon. As it, as it activates and shortens that muscle, it applies tensile load on the tendon, but it also applies compression because it's being pulled, but it's also being squashed into that bone as it wraps around the bone. I hope that makes sense. 
Yeah, I think so. I think the pulley analogy, that's the one I always use. And I say, imagine like you've got a pulley at a right angle. So you've got the pulley wheel, whatever they call it. And then the, the string here and the, the other string at a right angle to it. And if you were to put your finger in the pulley as it was being pulled and your finger went into the, the ball, in the ball, the, the circle, it would get squashed because the 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 vector for my physics teacher father would be inwards. Um, so you would get a, a different force experienced. You would, your, um, the rope of the pulley would squash your finger. But in the same way, the outside of the tendon is squashing the inside of the tendon, the, the part closer to the pulley, or in this case, the sip bone. I don't know that I explained that any clearer. You did, well. you did better than I would. <laughs> well, the, the general gist being that I, the other way I phrase it is that it sort of wraps around the corner. The tendon attaches to the sit bone, but before it does, it wraps around the corner and attaches to kind of the backside of it so that it has this kind of hook um, pattern at the end. And that causes a compression force as well as a tensile force. Yeah. Yeah. And this is how the body moves. Like it needs to wrap around to the other side in order to create movement. If right. um, that, that, that's just how tendons work. But the, what's interesting about like a tendinopathy, like you can, some people, not all, but some people can withstand a lot of tensile load, but not tolerate a lot of compression. And so we need to, when we restore this tendon, we need to factor in both of those things and adapt and get stronger and be able to tolerate both of those things. And why the deadlifts are so good is because it really does a great job of applying tensile tension to the hamstring, but also compressive load, because as you sit back and do that deadlift action, you are um, emphasizing that wrapping behind that sitting bone and you're really under slow controlled circumstances um, meeting that compression condition. And then if you able to adapt to that and get stronger and stronger, you're actually tolerating greater compressive loads and you are um, then starting to tolerate more sitting because that compression of the tendon on the sitting bone, you're able to start tolerating more of that, that thing. And I've had people be really good with say like, I don't know, running where they're, um, the control of the hamstring when they run is really going really well. But then anytime they do like a lunge or bend forward or do running uphill, they really, really struggle. And it's because they're getting very strong with their hamstring strength, but they just haven't really caught up in terms of the amount of compression that they can tolerate. And so um, that's why it's really important that we address both and that, yeah, we get really, really strong in both of those conditions. Hmm. Yeah. And so the other thing, like, is because we've mentioned sitting a few times, and obviously in a deadlift, you're not sitting. There's not a physical pressure on your butt when you're sitting. But I know that you mentioned at the start, and it's certainly my experience too, that when people have this problem, particularly if it's quite bad, they can't tolerate sitting. And there it's more like, it seems like a different kind of compression. Am I... Am I on the right lines there? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure if it's exactly the same. Maybe the tendon itself is just really, really sore uh, or like it's it's undergoing right. a pathology and then we're just pushing on it. Like we, you push on a right. bruise and that gets really sore. Maybe that's the case. But 
um, nonetheless, like you're, you won't encounter a full recovery or a full rehab and expect to get back to your athletic endeavors if you don't address that compression component, which would be doing things like deadlifts. Um, and that it, the same reason why deadlifts are so good is exactly the same reason why deadlifts can be bad if you get it wrong yeah. because it really targets the proximal hamstring. It does a really, really good job of targeting that area. So what is really good and meeting those conditions and really um, tailored to that area, you can really easily overload that area at the same time as well, just purely based on the mechanics of that particular exercise. Yeah, and I think that's that's what I was thinking of before is that you mentioned that they'll sometimes people will try and do some deadlifts and it'll flare it up, but you're actually advocating for a, a use of deadlifts as a specific, you know, uh, what's the word, like a key intervention. But it's like the devil's in the details. It's like if, if you do it when you're not at the right stage or you do it in an amount that is too much, you're going to flare it up. But that's also why it's such a useful stimulus because it is so targeted to that area. It's also why you have to be very careful with it. Is that is that about yeah. the gist of it? I, I say that about most injuries. Like if, if, if someone's doing really, really well with whatever injury they have and then they return back to a specific thing and it flares them up, I say that's really good information to know because we know that that's your vulnerability, but that's also targeting that area. So if someone, you know, wants to return back to like the trails and they – do really well on the flats and the uphill, but as soon as they integrate some sort of downhill, if that flares them up, it's like, okay, great. We've identified this as a real vulnerability. Let's get you really, really strong at this. And, you know, it's going to really enhance your um, resilience. And so hmm. the same thing with the deadlifts. Um, and it's really unfortunate because some people do start deadlifts, it flares them up, and then they just retreat back to their hmm. safe, non-effective glute bridges, you know, body weight, single leg bridges, bridges on a step, bridges with a band, bridges with a ball, like you name it, all that, all those variations. And they don't get better, unfortunately, because they've had that such a bad experience with the, the heavy lifting stuff. Um, but it, like I say, I remind them, you've done this deadlift, you've done it once and it flared you up for three days. Maybe there's something to that that means we need to get really, really mm. good at that thing in order to... Mm get that resilience in order to get back to doing what you want to do without these flare-ups. Hmm, yeah. And then you can be really targeted in your rehabilitation strategy. So I did want to ask, cause I, I, I want to, um, I'm at the end of the day here in, in Alberta, but I know you're just getting started Brody and you've probably got work to do. So I want to be quick. Um, the, the, something I hear a lot is, people have been diagnosed with this problem is that they they are stretching a lot and they're foam rolling, doing dry needling, trying to reduce tension because to their understanding, there's too much tension back there. And that's why they have the the pain in the tendon. Would you, what are your thoughts on that? On stretching and foam rolling and that sort of stuff? Yeah. So I had, this is another unfortunate thing. Uh, if you If you dive into it, it's like, not many people know a lot about PHT. A lot of people have PHT and a lot of people struggle to find an effective solution for PHT. This is why I started the podcast and why so many people flock to it is because often 
for a couple of reasons, stretching. So sometimes people have this high hamstring or glute pain and then they do their, these hamstring stretches and it feels like it really hits the spot and people mm. like doing a stretch and it feels like it hits the spot. It feels like it's doing something. Um, it's like, this is the only thing I can do where it stimulates a little bit of pain, but it kind of feels good afterwards. And so they're compelled to gravitate towards that. Um, either that or they've gone to a therapist that doesn't really know a lot about PHT and they've been told to do these hamstring stretches. Um, that's, you know, the, the, the two most common cases of why someone feels compelled to do stretches. And it does make them feel better in the moment, a couple of minutes later, you know, very, very short lasting, but um, <clears throat> effective in that sense. But it doesn't do anything for the tendon. It doesn't do anything to help restore its capacity um, you know, reverse that pathology. It just makes things feel a little bit good in the moment. But if you do it too much, it can irritate. It can actually make the pathology worse over a long term because you're constantly kind of irritating that area. And so people get really stuck. Um, people feel that initial sense of, yes, I feel like I'm targeting the right area, but it's not getting better and it's getting worse. And so they feel compelled to stretch more and more and it's just like it leads to a really um poor like you know load management they're not doing the right things and so that's one side of things if you 10 years ago everyone was saying stretch proximal hamstring tendinopathy or piriformis or glute or whatever just stretch 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 um now some people with pht are starting to find that stretching is ineffective and does more harm and does more damage and is actually being really alarmed at stretching and so people are avoiding picking things up off the floor avoiding bending forward avoiding any sort of stretch whatsoever and they're sort of shifting more to mm. the other direction and being really yep. fearful and so we would need to be really really careful of how we explain this stuff and in the same sense that your hamstring will have a certain capacity to run will have a certain capacity to deadlift it'll also have a certain capacity to stretch we want to make sure that not only like you can stretch within what you can tolerate. Um, it is safe to stretch. You're not doing more damage, um, but we don't want to overdo it. We don't want to underdo it either because if you don't stretch for six months, it's going to be really hard for you to get back to stretching, um, not only because you're going to have this fear avoidance and you're going to you know, really modify what you're doing throughout the day to avoid that stretch, but you're not going to do more damage. Stretching's fine. Just you need to find your capacity. And I have a lot of people with PhD wanting to get back to yoga classes or get back to Pilates and all those mm. sorts of things, but they have this fear of stretching. We need to really reassure them that stretching is okay. Don't do too much because that's going to irritate. Once you restore, once that pathology starts getting better, you can start doing more stretching the same way you could do more running, the same way you could do more deadlifts. We just need to factor that, that all in. And so we need to really find the middle ground because we've had PHT sufferers really sway on both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, definitely. I have um, I've experienced that too with people. And I think that's a really nice point to end because it, it displays the, um, again, the devils in the details, right? The um, there's, This isn't a thing with fine, um, fine, fine art and, and well-defined rules. Uh, there is a, there are principles to follow if you want to, to recover from this. And you know, we've definitely just scratched the surface today. You know, like I said, you've got many, many podcast episodes about this. So if this is resonating with anyone, um, it sounds familiar to them or someone they know, um, your podcast is probably the best resource that you could possibly find on this problem. 
Um, and I, I don't say that to be flattering. It is quite exceptional, really, that such a specific condition in a specific population, you've done so much work to provide so much high quality and freely available information. It's absolutely fantastic. So if you could share the name again, I will put the link in the description for anyone who's looking. Thanks, mate. Yeah. And like some people are just blown away to have this condition. Search, 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 search. Can't really find much. And then they come across a podcast on this condition <laughs> that has about 100 episodes. Like they're just blown away by how specific it is. Um, so overcoming proximal hamstring tendinopathy podcast is where you can go to, to search it um, and start listening to it. The first like 100 episodes is quite daunting. Listen to the first 10 to 15. Um, you, you get like... 80%, 90% of the, the stuff that you should know and start applying, um, you know, that's a, a bit more digestible. So do that. Don't be too overwhelmed by all the podcast episodes and um, start there. And there's a lot of success stories on there. I really try to promote positivity. There's a lot of PHT like Facebook groups and big community forums out there that are just a lot of doom and gloom. So mm. we try to encapsulate a lot of, success stories and positivity and all that sort of stuff. And people are very thankful for finding it. So if you want to check it out, that's where you can. That's fantastic. And are you still doing your um, injury consultations, like second opinions for people? Yeah, I have free injury chats for, for someone um, if they want to book in. Um, injury chats, 20 minutes, just jump on, have a chat about your rehab, have a chat about, you know, um, if there's anything that needs to change or you know, second opinions and that sort of stuff. I don't really diagnose on 20 minute injury chats, but um, can help guide people in the right direction if needed. And then if they want to start working together, that's another like, op that's another opportunity to have a chat about exactly what's involved there. Yeah, I can imagine if anyone has this problem, especially if they've been suffering with it for months or years, the way many people have, I can imagine them very definitely wanting to talk to you for help with that. Because <laughs> um, yeah, you're, you're quite the wealth of knowledge here i really appreciate your time mate i know that you've got stuff to do so um, i'm sure we'll have you back on at some point and uh yeah thanks for joining us buddy thanks for having me matt all the best thanks once again for listening and taking control of your rehab if you are a runner and love learning through the podcast format then go ahead and check out the run smarter podcast hosted by me I'll include the link along with all the other links mentioned today in the show notes. So open up your device, click on the show description, and all the links will be there waiting for you. Congratulations on paving your way forward towards an empowering, pain-free future. And remember, knowledge is power.